welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. It is Pastured Pig Podcast time. As always, I'm your host, Troy, excited to have another episode ready for you all to enjoy. And uh, as, I, as I sit here in my office and look out the window, uh, as I'm recording this, we just passed the summer solstice. So we're on the downhill side. Those of you all excited for snow and ice. <laughs> I can't say, I can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> you're you're halfway there. You you've you've reached the summit. Those of you that hate summer, and I don't know too many pig farmers that hate summer. So, but as I look out the office window here, onto the expanse that is Red Tool House, I really can only look about twenty feet because everything's so green and bushy right now. It seems like around here, as we get closer to the solstice, it's like things just go into jungle mode overnight. Um, I swear, I think the trees outside of my office that keep me from looking down onto the, uh, what we call the, um, the easternmost pig pasture. I, I just can't see, I, I can't see it all. It's just, it's just a wall of green right now. And it, it seems like, um, just over the past two weeks, it just poof, exploded leaves everywhere. And the other thing that happens right now that is terribly frustrating for me is white tailed deer infestation. Some of you all have uh, cicadas. Some of you all have uh, love bugs if you're down in Florida. Some of you all have uh, stink bugs or ladybugs or all those type of infestations. We have white-tailed deer infestations at this point. In fact, we are so overrun with whitetail, I have put up as much electric as I possibly can around anything we're trying to protect to keep the whitetail from eating it, and they're still eating it. So uh, my recent attempt was to... Uh, clear out um, or to keep deer from clearing out my potato patch. So I put <laughs> put a fence charger just for that. And it's, my goodness, it's probably a 20 by 30 uh, field of potatoes. It's tough to even call that a field, a patch of potatoes. <laughs> and I, put, I had one extra energizer and hooked that thing up. I'm getting 16 kilovolts off that thing. So I'm, I'm actually hoping I can see a white tail actually just burst into flames at some point. <laughs> But then uh, we just discovered this week that uh, my fencing that we had around our garden, our backyard garden, the deer have decided they're going to come over that and they they hit us pretty hard. So we got to figure out how to take care of that and keep them out. So landscaping, flowers, food, whatever. I'm just glad the whitetail don't eat meat or they'd, uh, they'd jump me when I go out to the garage or, or when I'd walk out to the shed at some point. So... That's the struggle we're having. Um, I keep saying this fall I'm going to declare um, whitetail nuisance animals and fill up a couple freezers, but you know how that goes. But anyway, I hope everyone is, since we're at the halfway point, the marker of the solstice, I'm, I'm hoping that everyone is halfway through all their goals they want to get accomplished in the warm season of 2021. I'm sure all of us are cheering and saying, yes, yes, we are We are far past halfway. Well, we are so productive this year that things are going great. So <laughs> I hope that's the case because it's definitely not the case here at Red Tool House. All right. Well, uh, before we get into our interview, I do want to uh, give a shout out to all of our Patreon supporters. Again, I really appreciate you all that have uh, decided to, to help us out, to, to help keep the podcast going, and of course, to offer additional, additional elements, additional incentives as we move along. So we are creeping up to that first goal of 20 people. <clears throat> so once we get there, then of course we'll get to switch some additional stuff on, but we're also already doing additional episodes and there'll be some additional, um, additional uh, what I call DLC uh, uh, information out there, some spreadsheets and things that we use. We're going to be adding that soon. Hopefully people can find that of use when it comes to managing pigs here on the farm. But I want to give a shout out real quick and on the list to our supporters I want to give a special thanks to Jed Bicker, and Dana Probert, Noah West, Bill Speed, Dan Pro, Adam Gardner, Obar Farms, J.B. Brown, Chet Peters, Mario Tessier, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Bonnie Hewitt, 
Clayton, here we go. Um, oh my goodness, Clayton, I am so sorry. Schnauer, S C H A N N A U E R, Schnauer, Schnauer. Clayton C. Thanks, Clayton. Um, Fritz Seabolds and Chris White. Chris actually just joined us um, about 20 minutes ago. <laughs> so his name popped up just as I was starting to record this. So, Chris, thank you so much for your support. And everyone else, I appreciate that. And um, hopefully your support won't be in vain. We'll keep moving with additional episodes and some additional features as we go along. If you'd like to be part of that team, obviously just... Uh, down in our show notes there, you can see the link, click on that, and get to see the details, the different levels we have, details of, of what goes along with that, and um, and we'll keep clicking along. Along the same lines, I'm hoping, I, I, I know that um, I, I cringe a little bit with some of these interviews because the audio quality is at times what I consider subpar, and that really is... Um, a limitation of my home office and a landline. Yes, I do have a landline that I use, and that's how we're doing interviews right now because I don't have any other options. My internet's too slow, too much latency to do anything, uh, you know, Zoom or Skype or anything like that. I don't have cell service here, so I can't do cell phone calls. And I swear, I think the phone lines that were put up were probably uh, leftovers from Thomas Edison's initial install of electric wires because they are dodgy at best. So what's what's really funny is if we get any rain, then the phone quality decreases because I think the um, the sheathing on the lines are, are like Swiss cheese. They're so old. But that's the price you pay to live in paradise, right? So uh, as I've mentioned before, as soon as uh, Elon Musk comes to save our lives here with Starlink, we've, we know it's coming soon. We've put our deposit down on our equipment. So hopefully as, um, as that comes available, that... It's supposed to be a game changer for us. Uh, we'll see. I'm not completely sold. But hey, it's better than what we've got now. Okay, so let's move along. Today, we are discussing Broad Arrow Farm in Bristol, Maine with my new friend, Dan Sullivan. And really enjoy this conversation. You know, I know I say that every time. It, it, I guess one of these days, and you say, you know, this, this conversation really sucked. This was just a drag that I had talking to this person. But I haven't run into that yet. I've yet to have a bad conversation. And knock on wood, I hope I never have a bad conversation. But uh, everyone that's come on has been obviously very fun to talk with. It's neat to see their specific experiences. But I, I like what Dan's going on here. I even had in my notes to make sure to point out that we had a great conversation about Dan's value-added services. And if you don't know exactly what that means, I won't get into that in too much detail now. Uh, we'll let Dan speak for himself. But it's this idea of what do you add to your farm experience to move your product more, to give more uniqueness to your product, to add a service. Basically, just you know, you're adding value to what your base product is simply through an experience, simply through any type of upgrades. That's value added and really like what he has. And, and I love the sense of humor they have there, obviously being up in Maine. Uh, they've got this thing called the Suppa Club, which I thought was clever, obviously taking advantage of that, um, that local vernacular up there in that neck of the woods. But uh, it, Dan goes on to explain some of the things he has there, and it was a really good, good conversation. In fact, we may get uh, we may get Dan back on. I've I've got an earmark by him getting back on here to talk about um, Mangalitsa, how they actually um, you know, the genetics associated with that, and then of course how to market that, how they've been successful in marketing Mangalitsa as far as product goes. Because I know there's you know some of us that would be like, wait a minute, you know, you can't you can only go so far with that breed, you know, kind of like what people say with Cooney Cooney. But um, I've got him on the list. Maybe getting back on, we'll have that conversation. But enough of me rambling on. So let's get on to our conversation with Dan. And I'll catch you guys on the tail end of the interview. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. Excited this morning. Yes, I'm doing a morning interview, so that's why I sound a little different. But excited this morning to have with me on the podcast Dan Sullivan from Broad Arrow Farm in Bristol, Maine. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Troy. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and talk with us. I know you got a lot of stuff going on up there in Bristol, 
and uh, you know to, to take some time out of your day to to talk with us. I, we we really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Well, um, let's start out. Let's talk a little bit about uh, if people are listening, they're gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna try to keep from fawning over Maine because I talk about it a lot on the podcast. But uh, let's talk a little bit about Broad Arrow Farm in Bristol, Maine, where it's located, and some of the unique aspects of your farm there. Sure. Uh, Bristol, Maine is in a region of the state known as Midcoast, Maine, so between Portland and Rockland, Maine. Um, it is a uh, our farm's located on a peninsula called the Pemaquid Peninsula. So, what we call downtown is a is a town called Damariscotta, which is uh, on Route One. Um, we are between Damariscotta and the sea, and uh, the peninsula is unique in many ways. One is that it, uh, on one side of the peninsula is the world's uh, greatest oyster fishery, the Damariscotta River. Mm. And uh, on the other side, um, which is the Atlantic side, Muscungus Bay is the world's greatest lobster fishery. So, um, you know, it, it makes our, uh, our, our geography, our, our location, um, unique for those reasons, but also it gives the, the whole area sort of a, a culinary bent. And um, when my wife and I were looking for uh, a spot to start a farm, um, we thought that was as good as any, uh, if for no other reason than, as I said, you know, there's um, there are a lot of uh, producers operating in the area, not so much land-based, but sea-based producers. And and we thought that would make for an interesting combination um, if, we, if we could add the lamb-based uh, protein side of things to it. Yeah, I'd, I'd love that approach. I mean, that, that is really looking at your market and understanding um, the uniqueness of that area. And I, I think, and we'll get into that here in a bit, I, I think you've really taken that and run with it uh, with some of the value-added services you offer on your farm, really looking at the culinary side of that. Well, let's let's talk real quickly. So, Broad Arrow Farm uh, established two thousand fourteen, I think, correct? Right. So, so that was um, is that was that your first foray into farming? Or had you have experience elsewhere? Did you grow up doing this all your life? Is dirt in your blood type no. of thing? No. Yeah. That that's no. We didn't. Neither my wife nor I have any background in farming. Um, we although uh, and 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 the uh, the impetus. Uh, came from my studies. I was studying for a, um, a, a graduate degree, uh, and I won't bore you with the details of that, but I was reading uh, a, an author who really changed my mind, or really educated me, frankly, about um, the current state of affairs in American agriculture. The, the author's name is Wendell Berry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Most absolutely. people who listen to your, your your podcast know him. Sure. I think he's one of America's great treasures and, and underappreciated, although the people who discover him, you know, just think he's absolutely amazing. And he is a real, real countercultural thinker, and he really... Um, uh, caused me to rethink uh, how I uh, many things I, I thought I knew, especially about economics. I used to be in finance, so I thought I knew everything about economics, and I understand a lot better after reading Wendell Berry, The Consequences of Our Economic System. So um, I, I, I mentioned to my wife, we owned property in Maine at the time, but it was, it was just a vacation home, and uh, I said, you know, we ought to sell our vacation home and and find a property and start farming, you know, homesteading on a homestead scale. And this is after reading Wendell Berry, and she said to me, you know, that's crazy talk. What are you, <laughs> we don't know anything about farming. What are you, what are you? that's nuts. And uh, it took me about five years of, um, you know, dropping hints and sprinkling our conversations with um, the glories of, of the agricultural life, the homestead life, and uh, finally she, I wore her down and she agreed. And um, we, we knew the, the area where our farm is located now, we knew the area uh, pretty well. It has, an, has the advantage of being both, just from a pure farm economics perspective, being close to markets, you know, not too far from Portland. Um, and uh, it's a nice balanced 
community, you know, many communities in Maine, especially coastal Maine, uh, have are, tend to be very, very seasonal. And, and ours, Bristol, is has a seasonality to it as well. But it also has a year-round functioning um, culture, you know, uh, in, in, in the broadest sense of that term. So, yeah, we knew it was an attractive place to live and where we could raise our family. And so, um, uh, so we chose. We really dedicated our search to that uh, that area, and as you as you might um, imagine, there aren't many or weren't many at the time, and still aren't many um, functioning farms. Mm. Uh, there, so we ended up buying a property that uh, hadn't been farmed in um, probably three generations, maybe more, and we we just figured that we would um, you know just homestead and we, we didn't really have a, a sort of commercial scale farm in mind at the time and we the the property we chose uh was 130 acres mostly wooded 10 acres open um i wouldn't call it tillable that, that's probably an overstatement but you could certainly garden and, and there was a there's an open pasture and um we because we had an abundance of woods and not so much open ground. We just started with pigs. Pigs do well in the woods, and we thought, you know, if we screw this up in the and they're in the woods, you know, they're not going to do much damage. So, no big deal. And so we we bought five feeder piglets and we raised them, and it was fun. You know, it was fun to raise them. I had no uh, previous experience with livestock whatsoever. It was easy. We fed them out of you know fifty pound bags. Nothing special. Um, uh, a mix from Green Mountain, uh, a big Vermont mill, and uh, a, a, an organic mix. And um, we harvested the pigs, or had them harvested uh, by a local uh, abattoir uh, after probably seven, eight months. And we took our first bite and could not believe uh, what we tasted. I mean, we were stunned. Um, and, and we're coming from a, a background where we, we thought we were conscientious eaters, you know, where we, we uh, were paying the extra money to buy organic. We were uh, buying what we thought was the best uh, meat and fish and you know, whatever other poultry, whatever other animal protein from uh, really good stores. You're paying the extra money for that. And it was we thought it was it was important to us to be eating healthy, and then we tasted that pork and we just could not believe what we tasted. And I I go back to what I said before, Troy, is that we didn't think we had done anything special. You know, um, we hadn't used a special feed, a proprietary feed, or anything. And I've now come to under, understand five six years later that the special part was raising them on the ground, raising the animals on the ground. Right. Right. And that makes all the difference, uh, starting with the fact that the animal itself is never stressed. Uh, and, you know, to steal a line from Joel Salatin, the, the animals are, 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 are able to exhibit uh, their natural, you know, the, the pigness of the pig. They're able to, to engage in their natural behavior, social and, and um, foraging behaviors. And I think that makes all the difference now since then we've you know we've become more educated about feed and everything so we've got some ideas that we think have improved our carcass quality but you know that first little herd that we raised tiny herd that we raised was really an eye-opener and we thought geez we, we didn't do anything special and and this is the result well we're, we're on to something here you know i bet you everybody who tastes this pork would say, where can I get more of that? And uh, that's really what um, drove us to start building to a commercial scale. Yeah, yeah, that's, that man, what a great story. And that and that transition, wow, there's, there's 60,000 tentacles to that, what you just laid out there. But that transition to go from, from a homesteading, kind of raising your own to to that epiphanous moment where like, man, this is incredible. And where we're located, we, we could really turn this into something great. So what was that conversation like with your wife as far as 
I assume at that point prior to you, you had uh, you both had day jobs or something there that was that was paying the bills. So at what point did you say, okay, this is this is where we're going to refocus our livelihood to go in this direction? And how did that how did that evolve? Um, it was it was pretty gradual. Uh, and, and my wife my wife's day job is, is, is as an attorney, and so and she maintains her day job to this to this day. I mean, she's an attorney, and that's what she spends most of her time, the vast majority of her time doing. Um, and I, my day job is stay-at-home father. So my, my day job is more compatible to pursuing, to, to growing the farm uh, than hers. And actually, you know, it, it has worked well because we have off-farm income, and we needed that. We have needed that off-farm income in order to, um, to build the farm, because we literally were building it from scratch. I mean, we had the land base that was appropriate, but we had no fencing, we had no shelter, we had no storage, we had no um, uh, farm machinery of any kind. Uh, the access to our site was terrible, you know, it still is terrible, you know, uh, not a situation where we could ever have the public come to, to this first site. So we now farm on two sites, and I can explain that in greater detail, but but the, so the conversation, it, you know, to be perfectly frank, I, I didn't even have to have it because she enjoyed so much our experience raising these pigs, and so did our children. They were um, in their, uh, you know, elementary school age at the time. Now they're all teenagers, and uh, they they also enjoyed raising the pigs. And, and uh, you know, I think that's another thing about this, uh, class of livestock, uh, um, you know, they're knowing animals, they have personalities, they have knowing eyes, that's how I describe them, they have knowing eyes, and so that means that the there's an engagement with the animals that is um, satisfying, you know, and uh, um, you don't get that with, uh, I, I have found, you don't get that with every class of livestock, but um, so we enjoyed it. She enjoyed it, and we just began building gradually. It took us a couple of years to even acquire breed stock, uh, and we we finally did that. And then I would say we didn't crack the homestead scale until probably uh, 2017. 2017 was when we were we pushed. You know, we had our own breed stock, and and uh, we probably harvested in 2017 maybe 100 pigs, something like that. Um, so that's when we sort of pushed it, uh, beyond the, the homestead scale. Excellent, excellent. Well, yeah, I, I want to underscore something you said there. I think it's important. I, I know a lot of there's a, there's a majority of our audience that is uh, scaling up. So they may they may be at the commercial level just now, or they're even maybe at the homestead level and looking at turning this into income. And and I want to underscore what you said there: the gradual transition. And I think that's so important to recognize. We get excited. We want to. We want to pull the trigger now. We're kind of a, a culture of instant gratification, and money right now is pretty cheap. So there's a temptation to go out and, and acquire all this debt to get this equipment and to have, you know, all this expensive stuff to get to the level you think you need to be. But with the gradual rollout, a you can possibly avoid most of that debt, if not all of it, and b. You get to see how your animal reacts to the land, how you react to the animal. All these variables get to be played out before you have this huge investment, before you paint yourself in a specific corner. So I think that's really important, and I love, I love the way you roll that out there. So that's good stuff. Yeah, and I think, too, I mean, one of the things about um, pigs that we've found is that for whether it's homesteaders who, who want to raise a small herd uh, for, you know, extra income, which I think is totally doable without a big investment, um, or even farms, uh, whether it's dairy farms or certainly, certainly veg farm, you know, any, any farm that wants to do a, uh, or is interested in doing like a bolt-on enterprise, pigs are a good bolt-on enterprise, um, because I think they're, they're relatively easy to manage if you have the right spot for them and if you're only doing it seasonally. You know, that's another challenge, big challenge, that Maine has um, is that winters are harsh, and if you're going to keep breed stock, you have to overwinter them. You know, if you're going to sell your, uh, you know, depending on your distribution, like we have, we have multi-channel distribution, and so um, 
you have to, we have to uh, farrow, we have to, we have to uh, harvest pigs every month of the year. Uh, so that's a really big challenge, really big infrastructure challenge. But not, you don't have to do that. You know, you can run a nice little herd uh, seasonally, buy in feeders in the spring and harvest them in the fall and sell to your friends and neighbors uh, or sell to a farm like us. We wouldn't need you to feed it, but you could also keep breed stock and sell piglets. I mean, that's a, that's a big market right now. The feeder piglets are, right. are really, yeah. Uh, it's incredible how many, we don't do it. But it's incredible how many calls I get. Um, yeah, yeah. looking for feeder piglets. We're the same way. I could have I could have sold uh, probably ten letter litters last year if I had them. It's it's amazing. Yeah. So let's um, wow. Let's let's talk about this this value added. There, there's uh, looking on your website, and I'll I'll post all this information down on the show notes so you guys can find links to uh, today and stuff here, but. There, there's a lot of value-added services. So it sounds like from 2014 to 17, you're you're gradually rolling out. At 17, you say that's kind of your kick to the commercial. So now, it, looking at all the value-added services, how did you get to that point? Do you say, well, we're going to offer this. We're going to do on-farm butchery. We're going to offer the online sales. We're going to offer the 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 daily though the weekly meal situation. So right. let, let's look at that from a, a global perspective first, and then we'll get down and unpack each one of those. Okay, sure. We, um, I mentioned that the first site where we started our homesteading um, was not really practically accessible uh, to the public. So it just so happened, um, you know, serendipitously that uh, another property about a mile from, from the one where we started, which has good public access, uh, came on the market for a very reasonable price. It even has a little infrastructure. It had, had a home on it uh, that was in good shape, but it also had a barn, an old barn that mm. was in good shape. Um, and so we were able to acquire that property for you know for for a reasonable price, and uh, that gave us access to the public, which is important because you know at first we thought, oh, we'll we'll do a CSA type thing and we'll do farmers markets and. And that kind of thing. And I, we, we found that <clears throat> the, the time invested in, in the CSA model, and we, and we have a, some, some buddies who are kind of our mentors uh, in Maine, farmers in Maine, uh, who's, and, and they have a, really a cattle a ranch. And, but they, they did pigs as well, um, little bolt-on sort of enterprise pigs. And, and learning from them, we saw that, you know, the, the CSA thing has some challenges, um, and scale being being one of them, um, and then the farmers markets are difficult because you're selling frozen product, you know, shoulder to shoulder with other farms. They're selling the exact same thing, oftentimes having processed their pigs in the you know, the same abattoir that you had yours right. processed at, and so that's that just didn't strike us as a winning formula either, um, and we so we decided that. Um, setting up our own on-farm market was the best way to, and, and, and try to capture the retail dollar was the best way to go. Now, in addition to that, we one of our first hires, uh, employee hires, was a gentleman, uh, Oman Veely, who is a butcher and a chef in Portland, Maine, or what had been for many years, and um we hired him really to be our sausage maker. You know, we really wanted to get into charcuterie and, and start making our own sausage. But because he had these uh, relationships with many restaurants uh, and butcher shops in the you know coastal Maine area, Portland area, he was able to start you know walking in with our pork and selling it to restaurants. So our our business direct the restaurant. So our business developed commercially, first and foremost, on a sort of wholesale to restaurant uh, business, and much of that was whole animal. So we were able to sell half carcasses and whole carcasses to restaurants and butcher shops. So in 2017, 2018, that was probably, you know, two-thirds, even three-quarters of our income was from derived from those sales to wholesale sales to restaurants and butcher shops. Excellent. Wow. 
So, so, so starting with the on-farm uh, market there, and you know, with with the gentleman there that had that chef experience, what was the evolution of the those other value-added services you offer? So, was that when you then moved into these, um, in, into these subscription boxes, and of course, developing your websites? Um, yeah. How, how, the first thing we the first thing we did was um, we, we were sort of you know selling. What I would say, what I would call selling from almost directly from our processor to our customers, our wholesale customers, and then doing a little retail out of our farm market as as that developed. And you know that was sort of slow to develop. We had a good first summer, but it was you know it paled in comparison to um, you know because we just weren't known and. And it, it failed in comparison to what we were doing in the restaurant market. And um, so we uh, we decided we were building up our and investing in our, our, on, our on-farm market, you know, buying refrigeration and, and, uh, and buying displays and trying to get set up. Uh, but, but that's a slow, you know, that took some time. Uh, we, we had two... Um, growing seasons, two summers, we were open seasonally at the time where, uh, you know, we were just, we were selling out of the, the market, but it was kind of a seasonal thing and we weren't real, real well known. And so that took some time. And in the meantime, our wholesale business sort of carried us and we had invested at the uh, uh, end of, or during 2019, we thought, well, we need to, to, Kit out a, a kitchen so that our chef butcher Omen can make really sausage. I mean, that's really what we are sausage and other butcher food. You know, um, pates, terrines, uh, porchetta. You know, other butcher food that we could sell in our market. Um, and we invested in that. Uh, it, it was a very small kitchen. It, you know, it took some. It took some doing, and and uh, but it, but it was a significant commitment. But uh, we did it anyway because we felt like that we needed to capture the value-added dollar and not just sell raw pork, um, which I think is difficult. I think it's difficult to just sell raw pork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the the distribution channel is. It's it's competitive and it's difficult to differentiate yourself. So. Um, we invested in that kitchen. That was at the end of 2019. And then, you know, uh, everybody knows what happened in March of 2020. But at the end of 2019, um, or one thing that happens in our area that, that is different from other places is that many of our restaurants um, close uh, in the off, what, what we call the off-season, close in the winter. Mm. And that, that shrinks the restaurant base locally in our little community, the Bristol community, down to three or four places. And uh, they're great, and we go and eat there all the time, and, and uh, you know, they're convivial. We love that. Um, but, you know, it becomes kind of monotonous after a while. So we decided with our having made this, this, this commitment to this kitchen that we want this kitchen to be you know, we want a return on our investment, so we, we want that kitchen to be rolling right. every yeah. single day. Sure. And and so we started this meal club, this supper club. We call it Supper. Right. Yeah, I like that. Um, and and uh, we we essentially gave people who signed up for the membership, which is a, just a ten dollar one time fee, so really nothing. Um, they would we would send we send our our members a a menu every week on Friday mornings, and then they have until Monday evening to uh, choose uh, from that menu. It's a la carte menu, so there are choices of every choices of entrees, choices of of starters and side dishes. And then um, they place their orders by Monday night, and they come to the market and pick up on Thursday and Friday. And we started that in January, yeah, you know, so it's like dead winter, and January of 2020, and and at that time, you know, it, it was popular because people thought exactly what we expected. Hey, you know, uh, it's it's an alternative. This is an alternative to having to go to the two or three restaurants locally, and we don't have to cook, so that's great. We can take home t- heat and eat, and it's 
real food because it's coming from Broad Arrow Farm and other and other farms, you know, uh, close, uh, proximate to our, to our farm in, in Maine. We're all organic, and so it's it's real food, and it's prepared by a chef. You know, I mean, this is no joke. This is so the value proposition was great. Uh, you didn't have to pay to be eating in somebody else's room, uh, and so you didn't have that markup, and so the value proposition was great, and it was really easy, and so it gave people an alternative, and that was popular. January, started in January, January, February, very popular, and then mid-March, COVID hit, and um, there was the lockdown to flatten the curve, and every restaurant, all of our restaurant customers closed, and the restaurant business went away over literally overnight yeah, yeah and but two things happened one is all the restaurants were closed but our our meal club was was open for business <laughs> yeah. and so our membership you know doubled overnight oh, bad. and we went we went from maybe having 20 members you know doing 15 20 meals a week to doing 50 and and uh, at one point we did 70 um double portion meal so that's 140 <laughs> covers in in one week so um yeah that's a bit of a scale that, that's a bit of a scale up pretty quick <laughs> yeah exactly and we were and, and we were humping hard really to keep up and so there was that side of things and then the other side was our market at that time of the the season we were our market was closed uh, we were only open a couple days a week and it was really just to distribute the uh the supper club and uh if you remember, in mid-March, uh, grocery stores, if they had, there was a supply disruption, right? So if they had anything, forget about toilet paper, anything <laughs> talking about. If they had anything, you had to wait in line to go get it, and you didn't want to wait in line because there are a lot of other people gathering, and, you know, the, uh, uh, it, the, the, the grocery stores were a disaster. Nobody wanted to go shopping, but they could come to our market and get food. So we, and, and not just food. But real food, yeah. And so we we decided, you know, again overnight, uh, instead of being open two or three days a week as we were at the time in March, we said, okay, we're open six days a week. Let's go. And um, at that point in time, we had we had a team of of uh, five, six six people, six people, so three production people, and and then um, actually five at the time, so three production people and two people. Uh, one managing the store and one managing the uh, the kitchen, and we just started working around the clock uh, mid March to uh, to serve our customers, and and that of course even with our market, um, many 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 people didn't want to come inside to shop. So we had a website at the time, but uh, we we needed to again like overnight load into our our online store, every item that we sell in our market so that our customers could browse our online store as if they were coming into our market. And then they could arrange for curbside, you know, no contact curbside pickup. You know, this is, uh, so we did that. I mean, in a week we went from having, you know, sausage, bacon, and pork chops on our website to everything we sell in our market. Yeah. Wonderful. And um, because our our most of our vendors are main vendors, we had no supply disruption at all. Um, so we were fully stocked at all times. Um, we have good relationships with our our local processors, so we, we didn't have any problem uh, keeping um, you know pork rolling and uh, and other animal proteins. So we were able to to adapt really quickly and. Um, and we caught a lot of market share because of COVID. We caught a lot of market share that, that might have taken us a couple of years to, to capture had it had uh, had it not been for COVID. Yeah, yeah. What an interesting. I mean, it's it's great to, to be able to evolve and to adapt that quickly. And that's that's the beauty of of having the right business model where you can be um, that flexible and fluid when the when the time comes. And again, who who in the world anticipated a, a global pandemic affecting us last year? Right. But but yeah, right. being able to 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 just capitalize on on a certain circumstance, and yeah, there, it sounds like there's a bit of fortune involved there as well, being set up just in time to 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 jump on that. 
Right. <clears throat> I, I would say that that's a it's a that's a good point. So to go back into what our what our design was, you know, what, what what we planned intentionally with respect to the market in the kitchen was we we invested a lot in that vertical integration because we we thought that um, well we found that the the best way for us to um, capture more market share to bring more customers attract more customers was to actually get our food into their mouth so selling raw meat was difficult and and especially in, in our our setup in our, our our little farm market at the time we were selling it frozen exclusively frozen yeah so yeah. it took a kind of a leap of faith and of course when people tried our product they had had the exact same experience that we did, which is, wow, this is, I can't even believe this is pork. I've never had pork like this. And so we won customers that way, but it was, it was slow and, and, uh, word of mouth and, you know, marketing, uh, advertising and marketing could be expensive. And you're, since we're, we're a novice, we're not, we're not, uh, professionals like you, since we're novices, we, we weren't sure if that if those dollars invested were realizing a return. So, so we, we knew, though, that if we could get uh, prepared food, cooked food into people's mouths, uh, they would just keep coming and coming and coming. And um, so we wanted to reduce that um, uh, that barrier uh, to trying our product. And you know, this is the other thing when you're when you're in the pasture market, and 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 we're not um, we're not certified organic, but we use organic feed and. and organic methods and and so um you know we're all but organic it's expensive you know it's, it's hard to do things that way it's expensive for us the, the producer and so our, our products are priced accordingly and you know that's another that can be an impediment too you know sure. somebody comes in they they look at a pork chop mm-hmm. and and uh it's we're selling it for whatever you know eleven dollars a pound and they say well geez i can i can go to the grocery store and buy the same pork chop for Dollar ninety nine. Why right. would I pay eleven dollars for a pork chop? And you know, it takes. That's another impediment. You know, it takes time to convince people, um, and even at, you know, if you want to go to the trouble, educate them about externalized costs and stuff like that. Right. Um, but uh, so the, the, that vertical integration, being able to distribute directly from you know retail direct from our farm. Uh, because that's really important, knowing where you're, this is one of our taglines, you know, know where your meat comes from. And then um, and then being able to actually make food. So uh, it, it also helps us with inventory control. So if we've got something in our market that hasn't been moving or, um, you know, in, in, including produce, by the way, we can then, take that that food or that animal protein whatever it is you can take it into our kitchen and make a meal out of it uh make a soup or make a stew or or um makes we can make if it's depending on what kind of animal protein it is or what cut it is we can make it into sausage and uh so the kitchen gives us a lot of flexibility controlling inventory as well you know, I love that, and that's that's something that you know, I think the majority of us don't even think about, it, and it really didn't register with me till you said that. That that's fantastic to be able to take. You know, there's certain cuts, of course, that just you just can't move as fast as you can others, and to look at that and say, okay, just by doing some value-added services, by incorporating some other elements into this, then you a are producing a new product, something somebody wants to try out, but you're able to burn up inventory that may get you know tossed out at some point simply because it it has a has a limited shelf life. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, you know, it's, it has, it has required significant investment to, uh, to become vertically integrated. Um, and, and we have a, you know, as I said, we have a team, we have six full-time employees. So, so we need to be at a certain scale in order to support that. Right. Um, and, uh, and it's a, it's a real management challenge. Uh, you know, it's no joke. Now I, I don't mean to say that, um, you know, a, a, a farm that that concentrates exclusively on raising livestock is any less of a management challenge because that's a management challenge in and of itself. But um, it, 
the, the vertical integration, um, it's expensive and, and, uh, and it can be challenging. That having been said, we think it gives us the best chance to succeed uh, long term and, um, and to make sure that, uh, and to differentiate ourselves. I mean, that, that was also the point, you know, it's one thing to capture as much margin as you possibly can. That makes sense. And so selling charcuterie for $45 a pound rather than selling a, a pork chop for, for $9 a pound or $10 a pound, uh, that makes sense to us. Um, but more importantly, what we're trying to do is be different from uh, the other farms out there who are raising pork exclusively and selling it raw exclusively. So, you know, I can't, I mean, I do say this, that our pork is better than everyone else's pork, and I, and I honestly believe that. Sure. I mean, I'll do a taste test anytime with anybody. But when you're selling to a restaurant or selling to a butcher shop, you know, uh, and you're selling that raw meat, I can't, I can't say that the farm down the road um, has, uh, you know, a, a, an inferior product. It's not like I'm comparing it against the industrial raised pork because I don't. That's a that's a totally different. That has nothing to do with what we do. Hmm. Um, I don't. I, I don't even consider that real food. It's not real food. And uh, we can get into that. I'd, I'd love to have a discussion about <laughs> industrial raised food and how it's not real food and, and making Americans sick. But uh, you know, we can. We can talk about that later, or not at all, because right. that, that could be a whole podcast unto itself. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but um, but we, we do want to be able to distinguish ourselves from, uh, differentiate ourselves from, from, from other farms. And so, you know, part of that's branding and everything, but um, being able to, to uh, sell food direct out of a retail market and then also uh, actually make food, whether it's... Uh, uh, your typical butcher-type products, uh, as I mentioned before, like sausage and pâtés and tureens and that kind of thing, or, or going all the way up to actual, actually preparing meals and selling meals. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, well Dan, I, I know I'd be remiss if I, I didn't address this in, in all of this vertical market uh, uh, details you're discussing here. So let's talk briefly uh, about the, the life cycle uh, process of the animal. So um, it sounds to me like the, the, the pigs and some of your other, because I know your polyculture is, but the, the animals, they go off farm for actual slaughter, but then come back, do you, do you bring them back quartered or halved? And then you, you, you then do your, your, your butchery process then. And then also for the, for that same process, what were some of the regulations and permitting and inspection hoops you had to jump through for all that? Sure. So we, we are a fair to finish farm. We also, when we have gaps in our farrowing schedule, because farrowing um, in Maine, especially in the winter, can be really tricky, really difficult, and we've had some problems uh, with that. And so we, uh, in addition to our own breed stock um, and our own farrowing program, we also buy in feeders from, mostly from Maine farms, but as I mentioned, but we, we also buy uh, some. We have a, a really good source uh, in Pennsylvania, so occasionally we go down there and pick up some some feeder pigs in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and that's really only because of a lack of of sources in Maine. I mean, it Maine's not a very piggy state, and uh, so it can be difficult. The the supply is always tight, is always tight in Maine for feeder pigs. So, uh, so we do supplement our own farming with with uh, with local feeders, and we raise them on our our site. They um, uh, they have uh, unimpeded access 24/7 to uh, to the outdoors, to um, uh, to uh, to the ground, to paddocks and fresh air and sun and all that kind of thing. Um, even in the winter, uh, we have a winter barn, so that we keep them in in woods paddocks uh, during the seven eight months of the growing season, and then for the four four months of the winter season, rather than than humping. Uh, feed and water um, out to the pigs like we do the rest of the year. We bring the pigs to the feed and the water, and it's really a water thing because uh, you know in Maine, in Maine in the winter the water is going to freeze. Right. So in order to have frost-free water, we need to have keep it in a barn. So we have winter paddocks uh, uh, that 
um, are configured around our winter barn and the pigs come and go as they please. We feed ad lib so they've got, you know, um, constant access to food and water. Um, and we raise them, it, it, depending on the precise genetics of the pig, it'll be anywhere from seven to nine months to raise them to market weight. Our, we consider market weight, again, depending on the genetics, uh, between 280 and 300 live weight. And um, we take them to, we've got sort of a collection of local uh, processors that we work with, um, one state licensed. And I guess there isn't much of a distinction now in our state anyway between state and USDA. There used to be a real distinction. But um, we, uh, so we work with three different processors and they, uh, we either do kill only, and so we have our biggest customer is a whole animal uh, butcher shop, and so our biggest wholesale customer. Mm. So we deliver weekly um, a whole carcass uh, to that butcher shop. We bring back either one or two uh, whole carcasses to our own kitchen to butcher and, and sell through our market. And then we, uh, the rest of the, the product, we um, arrest of the carcasses. We either have cut and wrap and frozen for for retail, or we have it, them, them cut into primals and uh, and again frozen, and then we sell the primals to mostly the restaurant market. Hmm. And they'll take it frozen. They typically take it frozen when they're buying, you know, loins or bellies or or shoulders. They'll typically take it frozen. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So as far as um, so as far as inspection process goes, then it's really just your kitchen certification and, and right. health uh, health department type stuff that go along with the, the right. kitchen and the finished product. Excellent. Yeah, exactly. And right now we are so we we are a licensed commercial kitchen. So that means we can do anything that you know a restaurant can do. We can make our own. A sausage or own pâtés and terrines, and we can make, um, you know, just just like a restaurant. I mean, our kitchen is like a restaurant kitchen. It's a full commercial kitchen, and and the inspection regime is not onerous in any way. I mean, they come and see us once or twice a, a year. Um, our kitchen is brand new, so you know it shows pretty well. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I I think that's an advantage. Um, but uh, it, so we're we're and we also don't have, um, you know, we don't have our, our, uh, an eat, uh, eat on-premise uh, or on-premise seating at all. So I think that's another wrinkle that the, uh, the health authorities, the inspection authorities, pay a lot more attention to restaurants because they have this, this eat-in um, uh, issue to deal with. We don't have that because we're not a restaurant. Um, so that, that also makes things, uh, the inspection side of things, a little lighter for us. The one thing we are considering, we just haven't done it yet, and I think this will this will be something we'll pursue, is to um, uh, arrange for um, on-site inspection for um, for making for for both meat cutting, but also for making charcuterie. So we we don't make our own charcuterie. We currently work with. Uh, co-packers, so we send our pork to these to the co-packers. There's one in one in Maine and one in Vermont that we work with, and um, they do a great job of of uh, of making you know salumi and and whole muscle charcuterie for us, copa and lanza and, and all the various cuts. Um, we would prefer to do that in house, but it's uh, it, you know it requires. An infrastructure investment, and also, you in order to be USDA inspected, so you can sell it across state lines, sell it online. Hmm. Um, you need uh, to have to be set up to have an inspector on your site, you know, at least a couple days a week. Right. Yeah, and that's so where, where the real expense comes whole, in there. Yeah. Yeah. That that is a you know we we haven't crossed that Rubicon yet. Yeah. You know, we're, <laughs> right. we're 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 trying to hone in our more fresh product. I mean, that's really where 
our, our market has become a destination butcher shop, and that's that's really what our business plan is to be a destination butcher shop. And so we're selling more and more fresh product, not frozen product. And so that's our commitment this year, 2021, is to really develop a reputation for that um, fresh product in in our market. And then we'll see how um, you know whether or not we want to up our game and, and become inspected. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. That that's actually a good segue into my my next question. And I know we're we're running a little long with you here, so I want to be uh, sensitive to your time. But what what do you see as far as short term goals? You know, the next year or so in long term goals. Your five year plan uh, for for your farm and, and for the services you offer. Well, the short term goal is there's there's sort of two. I mean, there are two sides of the house, right? There's the sort of kitchen market side of the house, and then there's the production side of the house, you know, the actual raising of the animals. We also do uh, seasonal poultry. And um, we, so we're really focused this year on our breeding program. We really want to up our game. We're, we're, we're undertaking our, um, artificial insemination for the first time. We're, we're buying genetics from, um, from breeders in the Midwest. And uh, we're really excited about, we've really, I think, found the right partner for that. So we're really excited to, to, to see the, um, the outcome of that, the combination of, of those genetics we're buying in with, with our current breed stock. So um, I, th- that's going to give us not only more consistency in terms of carcass quality, although that's already really pretty good. The, the one thing that the, the AI will help us do is, time our farrowing better than we, we currently do. So um, so we're really looking forward to that, having a more consistent uh, delivery schedule, and uh, that'll able, uh, enable us to lighten our footprint in the winter, for example. Um, and so that's, that's the goal for, for 2021, 2022. On the production side is to really become raise our our breeding program to professional level because i would say it's right now it's sort of uh it's a little bit um it could be better let's just say that Hmm. and then on the the um market kitchen side what we're we really want to do i mean this is an important important part of what we do is give people the experience you know we have a, a a food market and that's great, but our food market is actually on the farm where the food is raised or grown. And um, although we do sell produce and, and other products that are raised off-farm, of course, but giving people the opportunity to reconnect with how their food is raised and grown, uh, we think is absolutely essential to uh, turning the, the, the tide of what's produced in, in the United States, uh, food that's produced that is literally making people sick, and uh, turning it so that people, uh, you know, so that the food we grow or the food people eat is actually a source of health and a source of, of thriving. And uh, we've seen it ourselves. In our, I mean, you know, we're our own guinea pigs. We've seen the, the impact of eating real food as opposed to eating processed and industrial raised food there's a dramatic difference and we want people to know that and the best way to deliver that message is for them to actually physically come to our farm and physically uh even go out and and see the pig see the piglets see the the chickens and the turkeys and the ducks and the geese that we raise uh you know right right there right on our farm so that's an important part of the the vertical integration and um, what we plan to do in 21-22 is increase that engagement with the public. So you know, we're going to build some spaces that will allow the public to uh, take what, we, uh, what they buy in our market, ready-to-eat stuff. They take it in our market, and then they take it outside. They could sit at picnic tables or sit on, on a deck that we're planning to build so that they can actually have the experience, take it one step further, not just, buy our food and, and see the animals and then take it home and, and cook it, but they can actually buy ready-to-eat food in our market and then go out to our deck or go out to our picnic area and enjoy, have a moment on the farm. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. And that I think that will be that's that's a real critical factor to engaging with the public and educating them and reconnecting with them uh, and, and getting them helping them understand you know what it takes to raise their food. Wonderful, excellent. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's some good vision casting there, and and definitely some education that the typical consumer needs when it comes to their food sources. Right. Well, Dan, one closing question I like to ask everybody, and we'll wrap up here because I know you've got a, a you know get the day's chores to do. But uh, one question I ask everyone is, what is your favorite part, or what do you most enjoy about raising pigs on pasture? Um, I, I I love the physical work. That's my favorite. Uh, it's um. I feel like I could do it all day long, every day. Uh, obviously, there are challenges, and it can be frustrating at times. Um, and uh, uh, when you're, you know, I, I feel, since I didn't grow up on a farm, I always feel like I'm playing catch-up, you know. I'm, I'm trying to figure <laughs> out this and that. But farming, the production side of farming is a, is a daily exercise in creative problem-solving. And I find that very, very stimulating intellectually. But I love the the physical work. I love to be outside. I don't mind being outside when it's pouring rain. I don't mind being outside when it's five degrees below zero. Um, I love being outside and working the site, working the animals, fixing fences, uh, feeding them and watering them. Um, I I love all of that. The physical labor for me is, is my favorite part. I used to think that I didn't ever want to work in the market because that sounds boring to me, but it turns out I'm a half-decent salesman uh, with respect to especially pork, but all farm products. And so I now find that on those days when I have to pull a shift in the market, I love that too. I love engaging with the public and helping them choose. You know, in our, our market, there's an embarrassment of riches. And so, but helping them choose the right cut for the meal they want to make and, and introducing them to new cuts. Um, or new protein, animal proteins they haven't had before, you know, that I find also very stimulating, very exciting. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's great. Well, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me today. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you. We may have to have you come back on some, some follow-up discussions because there's, there's probably another two hours worth of questions that I have here, but we'll, uh, we'll table those for another time. But I appreciate you taking the time and coming on the podcast. Happy to come back anytime, Troy, and thank you for, for what you do. It's really important. Um, you know, I, I mentioned to you before that um, I, I know that the focus of your podcast is narrow, but that's what makes it, makes it great. And, uh, and it's been very – the episodes I've listened to have been very informative, so keep doing what you're doing, and, and uh, we love it. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I pray you have a great day today, Dan. And I, I guess you're not pulling a store shift, a market shift today. So you, you probably got to be out, out in the pasture more today than, than being at the behind right. the counter. Excellent. Well, I pray the weather's well up there and you have a great week, man. I appreciate talking with you. All right. Thank you. You too, you too Troy. All right. Take care. Now, see, I told you all you'd like that one. So, uh, yeah, man, that was good. I, I, I keep telling Kelly that we need to find a a farm sitter for about two or three months and we need to do the pastured pig podcast live on tour on location and do a lower 48 uh, tour all across the country stopping and looking at, at these farms and, and talking to people on site i just it just fascinates me i <clears throat> i know the feedback i get from you guys that you all appreciate the different perspectives the different setups and obviously there's only so much that can be conveyed verbally uh, if we were doing video, then that would be a different story. But I would love to be on these farms with a mic, following somebody around and, and you know, whipping out the camera as well. That would that would be great. So one of these days, maybe um, maybe if your all's benevolence extends to the point where you want to underwrite on Patreon a world tour, then uh, then we'll get that done. <laughs> That's kind of a big ask, isn't it? <laughs> Hey, everybody, pay for Troy to travel for the next four months. You're dreaming, buddy. All right. Well, let's wrap it up here. So I appreciate everyone listening. And man, I love the feedback. Continue to give me feedback. Continue to give me suggestions on A, how I can improve. B, how we can get new topics and new guests. 
And uh, again, I, I know I hate to keep saying this. As soon as we get some technology, we're going to be able to improve technology. We're going to be able to do some more uh, broader discussions, maybe even have some roundtable type things if I can get the bandwidth to to be able to pull that off. Because uh, there's so many things on my grocery list that I want to do and discuss and have you all uh, be exposed to as we get into this more. But that just, uh, you know, the, the, uh, that's kind of like the anticipation model. So hopefully you are anticipating that as much as I am. And keep your fingers crossed that uh, the technology light gets shown into the valley of Red Toolhouse soon. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope everyone's having a great week. Y'all take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.